Hello and good evening, and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees in a Multicultural Mess. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Again, it's an absolute honor. I hope you've had a great day. It's the weekend, and um, and I hope you have a, a, a great weekend ahead. Um, we've got another lovely day, a podcast coming up, uh, and I am watching news and trying to figure it out and, and trying to give you um, feedback or should I say uh, foundation or historical uh, prospects on, on the news, what's going on in TV, on TV and um, on the internet. So we're going to discuss something very important today, halal. Uh, we've seen that in India there has been uh, issues with uh, mismanagement or abuse of halal certificates. Uh, it's a huge industry with a lot of economics, uh, and it's being imposed on people uh, in the name of religion. But really, it is only uh, an economic uh, grab, uh, a backdoor to make money. It has nothing to do with religion whatsoever. So I thought we'll go into the um, the atwa of halal, all that lies in between, the currents that form their ways, the historical base, basis of it, and a couple of other concepts, and you will understand what it is, basically. So we're going to do an atwa, uh, deep dive into it, or all that lies in between. A couple of years ago, a friend, an Arab friend uh, of mine, asked me to make an in Indian dish for her. So I, I went to a predominantly Arab shopping center, and there were a couple of meat shops, and I went to the first one I saw. Now, I don't eat meat at home. Unless a visitor comes, I will not make meat. I never buy meat products. Uh, so I was, uh, I mean, I used to eat meat before, but not very, very long time. I haven't eaten meat. So I was in foreign territory, pra practically, almost not knowing my way around. So I walked in, I asked if they sold halal chicken. They said, yes, all chicken in this province is halal. I was surprised because we're not a Muslim province. So why are they serving halal chicken all over the place? I mean, did the halal... Um, you know, con men put their, uh, impose their, their rules through the back door on, on, on the meat in this province to make a quick buck, trying to sell them as much as possible to, to force in the name of religion or, uh, you know, re religious economics. So just because they wanted to make money, should the whole province have to buy halal meat? It's exactly what's happening in Canada. Uh, in the province where I am, um, people are forced to eat halal. They don't even know they're eating halal meat, but they're eating like, like blindfolds. Um, and uh, someone's making good money out of it. But anyway, it is what it is. So I walked into this uh, shop and they said, uh, I said, do you sell halal? And they I was stunned to say when they said I stunned when when they said every every all meat in all chicken in this province is halal. Um, there are approximately five hundred Muslims, uh, five hundred million Muslim, five hundred thousand Muslims in this province. So the whole province has to eat halal because of them. Now I said, wow, this is ridiculous. Where is my right to decide what I eat or what I pay for? Thank God I don't eat meat anymore. I then asked the man behind the counter to pack me two ki kilos of uh, chicken. I paid for it and off I went. And on my way home, I thought to myself, that's weird. Growing up in India, most of our meat came from Muslim meat shops. The shop 
selling beef or chicken or lamb never had pork or the same thing on or another meat on the counter um but in the shop where I bought the two kilos of chicken, there were other meats on the counter. And one of those meats, so there was beef, there was chicken, there was lamb chops, there was pork chops. And I was stunned. Um, I didn't know what to say because I thought maybe, you know, this is another country. Maybe the Arabs do a different way. Uh, I said to myself going home, it was weird. I grew up in India and most of our meat shops did not sell um pork in the same on the in the same shop i distinctly remember the meat shop in the arab market center having pork on the same meat counters as the other varieties of meat so i sped home in my car that i bought i had borrowed from a friend as i did not have a car of my own at that point and i kept trying to picture the shop and all it sold once i reached home i texted my arab friend and asked her do you think it's weird that a shop selling halal chicken also sells pork at the same time and on the same counter i said in india we don't we do not do this but i do not know what you arabs do maybe you do it a different way shortly came the reply you are right an arab or muslim or a meat shop does not sell pork in the same shop or as other meats leave alone leave alone the same counter you better believe it i was furious and i'm still furious all this while later it took me a week to settle down if the car was mine i would have returned to the shop but i had to give the car back so i went online to the website on the of the meat shop and what you know they even advertise selling pork beef lamb chicken all on this in the same shop i also very clearly remember the employee of the uh, shop saying the whole province all chicken in the province where i live in is halal meaning even if you're not muslim you have to stuff it down your throat and someone is making a quick buck on your back furious is an understatement so i uh, so i i dug into the matter and you know um i said what is halal i i tried to figure it out i tried to research so halal is an arabic word which means that which is permissible the opposite of which is called haram which means that which that mean it means that which is forbidden it finds its origin in the old testament of the jews uh, which was taken like from them like almost everything else the hebrew term okay is mutar or permitted and asur which means forbidden the quran specifies what type of meat and foods are permitted for muslims in verses uh, in in surah chapter 2 verses 173 chapter 5 verse 3 chapter 6 verse 145 chapter 16 verses 115 he only prohibited your for you carrying blood and the flesh of the pig uh, carry he's he has only prohibited for you carrying blood the flesh of pig and what is dedicated to other than god but if it if one is forced out of necessity rather than desire or greed then he incurs no sin god is a forgiver mercy and merciful uh and merciful quran 2 uh chapter 2 verses 173 
So which, with regards to a modern halal meat concept, any an animal meat is rendered halal or permissible if and only if it's slaughtered according to Islamic customs by Muslim butchers. Uh, a Muslim uh, meat butcher was supposed to recite the Bismillah prior to slaughtering the animal. None of these requirements are mentioned in the Quran. So, you know, what the modern Muslims do is not mentioned in the Quran, nor does it exist in any Quranic surah or ayat that states the Islamic slaughtering is only lawful method of killing the animal. So if it's very similar to Christians saying grace before meals, okay? The Quran, Quranic Bismillah therefore applies to all foods, just not just the meat of animals. Quran, other than the Quranic verse 2, uh, chapter 2 verses 173 technically a Muslim is to in, invoke God's name before eating food and not before slaughtering the animal that's it nothing else so it's when you when you have to take God's name when you say, say Bismillah uh, only when you're eating the food not when you're slaughtering the animal so modern day halal meat does not exist in the Quran okay it's more money-making racket Neither do most Muslims on the ground nor commercial vendors aware of this technicality. However, every time an Islamic mullah or imam blesses an animal, sends it for slaughter, he makes X amount of cents a pound of meat. Now multiply that by millions of of pounds of meat eaten by 2 billion Muslims all over the world. Uh, and you understand why the Islamic establishment is so rich and powerful. We are feeding them with our money. That is why they insist on Muslims eating halal. It's a cash cow business. It's not for religion. God doesn't need your money. Nor for the love of Allah, but for the love of their pockets. As I like to say, behind every religious decision in this world, there is a business decision. There are no mullahs or imams in the Quran, nor does it say to charge money for halal meat, nor is there anything such as halal meat. God does not ask to charge money or his food. So where does this concept come from? It has nothing to do with God, nor anything else for that matter. It's a fabrication of the Islamic colonial empires for pure money, greed, and power. While us stupid people uh, of the non-Muslim world are so quick to submit to this Bedouin scam. So when I was young, I, as I mentioned, I grew up with Muslims. All our beef came from Muslim vendors. We never knew what halal was back then. What we liked about the Muslim community who sold us the brief, the beef was their smile, their energy. They were like family. The beef shop in my community was run by Muslims. They knew our faces. They saw us grow up. They would inquire about us, our health, our education, and how did we do in school. They always had smiles. It was those smiles that kept me going through my darkest of days. They and all the windows in the local market. We were family to them and vice versa. They were not about making a quick buck with us. They, they cared for us more than the beef and we waited to visit their beef shop every Thursday on our weekly school holiday. Halfway around the world, I still remember their beautiful smiles. When I am down and out and uh, it is back to my source that I go back to and their smiles are the first thing that comes to my mind all these years later. When I visit India, my first stop is to the local market to see all of them. Sadly, my old beef shop has closed, but their smiles will be eternal. 
Um, I also remember that growing up with my Muslim friends, they would never insist on special food. If we invited them over, we would have a variety of dishes. And if they did not want to eat, very courteously, they would say, no, thank you, my child. We already ate. Don't worry about us. This would be vice versa too for any family member, whether Muslim, Hindu or any faith. No one imposed their choice nor asked us for any special meal. Today I come across this halal scam and I want to throw up. Not only is it 1400 year old money making racket, but it's also an insult to humanity. I suppose no different from all other scams in the world. But this one gets a pass because it's legitimized by non-existent of a God, whom everyone is too chicken to inquire about. I was never dislibbed before, but today I will say that what I have to say without any hesitation. I suggest the government should pass a law that stipulates that no religious uh, theologian, is, whether Islamic, Jewish, Christian or otherwise, should charge cash or kind for blessing any commercial goods, services, food products in the name of God. There should be a complete ban on any compensation for these religious sales and marketing managers of God and their pedophiles. They can ask God to pay for their salaries. I guarantee you the game would change immediately. Nick, so that's what halal is. It's a simple thing and what we do for halal today is nothing that's written in the Quran. Um, they've invented most of it. And uh, basically, that's the long and the short of the story. And it's a money-making racket. And there's a lot of money involved in it. And every time you buy a meat that's halal, someone makes a quick buck. And that's why they will always be rich and powerful. And you will always be a second-class citizen. Uh, unfortunately, it is what it is. So I hope that you can understand, do the research, and then you have that conversation with your friends and family and people that you know, five people, talk about this, talk about going forward with it, and they can ask them to have this conversation with five people so we can we can understand what the backlog, what the foundation of this is, and what the historical events of this is. So let's go to another concept. It's called Nika Muta or nikah al-muta, uh, temporary marriage or pleasure marriage in, in Islam, um, in Arabic. Um, nikah, or the bondage of marriage, or wedlock in Arabic, refers to the act of sex or intercourse. It is a religious concept practiced by Muslims belonging to the 12 Shia sect of Islam. Nikah muta is a private and verbal uh, temporary marriage contract um, in which the duration of the marriage and dowry must be specified and agreed upon in advance. It can be made either verbally or in a written format. There is no maximum or minimum time limit. A declaration of intent to marry or enter into a contract and an acceptance on the terms are required as this is that as in other forms of marriage. So it's a temporary marriage, uh, mainly used by Shias. And uh, the duration of the marriage and dowry must be specified in advance. So it can be one night, one week, uh, one month. Um, you know, as short as uh, you're going to one town for a night uh, to, for a wedding. And you can have a temporary marriage for that night and get up in the morning and marriage is over. 
basically, it's like move, or moving in or living with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Eventually, you get married. However, none of this is controlled by the state or theologians. In Islam, as in any theocratic establishment, control and power is the key. If the establishment does not control you, you have no use and they have no use for you. And at one point they will cease to exist. Thus we come to the Islamic version of living with your partner. So muta literally means joy or pleasure. This concept does not come from the Quran, but secondary Islamic literature. It can apply to marriage or to the Hajj. Um, the practice is not followed by sh not followed by Shia Muslims who uh, by Sunni Muslims. Sorry, it is forbidden forbidden for sh Sunni Muslims or other sects of Islam. Um, however, there are historical sources that say that say that there was a time when Islam first arrived that Nikah al muta was legal among the followers of Islam, all followers. Commentary on the work of Sahih al Bukhari shows that. Muwayya, the first caliph of the Umayyad dynasty, entered into a nikah muta contract with a woman from Taif. She was a slave who was owned by a man from the Banu Hazarmi tribe. She received a yearly stipend from this caliph. Uh, technically, sexual access or rights to a female slave in Islam belongs to her. Uh, slave owner as part of his property rights which cannot be shared or assigned unless she is married off or sold. The concept in reality is a leftover from the matriarchal society in Arabia. In such a society, women were in charge. Sexual intercourse was a free-flowing concept with no stigma. Women would have had multiple sex partners. Uh, she was in charge. Um, she was had the authority. The only thing the man did was leave his slippers out of the tent and no one would walk in. When religions were born, the pendulum went the other way. But you cannot change the current so fast. So this concept continued. Uh, the only difference being in a patriarchal society, the men were in charge and formulated a law that suited their interest. Religion, as I like to say, is a duality between what's written on paper and man that controls the paper. All of this to concentrate his wealth and power in the hands of the elite while creating a man-made dependence of, uh, for you and their services in the name of hollow blind faith. As always, when wealth and power is concentrated in one's hands and the opposite side is ignorant, nothing is right. Thus, for most Muslim women, like many other women on this planet who are kept in ideological prisons, nikamuta can mean prostitution for those who practice it or um, for those on whom the practice is forced upon, as in poorer countries or areas of a country with marginalized populations. On the flip side, this, this concept can be used at various levels. To get to know your partner without entering into a chattel marriage contract where you are stuck for a very long time. The Islamic Republic of Iran is said to have a massive prostitution problem and hence the concept of nikamuta is therefore used to reform this mentality and keep control of abuse of women uh, and men involved. As in everything, there's always a positive and negative. However, neither end of the spectrum depends on the ideological concept itself, but on you.
If you're weak and ignorant, broken and negative, you will pay the price. So that was about Nikamuta. It was about temporary marriage, where it, a marriage contract is entered into by two people, either um, for the shortest of time to the longest of time. It really depends on you. And uh, it is legal. Uh, it's only followed by Shia Muslims and, and some not everywhere, depending on, on the country again um, and the theologians. But um, most Sunni Muslims don't follow it as to what they say. Uh, something else I will come to and which everyone talks about, Nikah Halala. Okay, this is our third concept for the day and uh, we shall close after this. So this uh, part is called the Islamic Divorce Law. Islamic Divorce Law consists of three stages. So the law stipulates and if he has divorced her for the third time, then she's not lawful to him afterwards until after she marries a husband other than him and if the latter husband divorces her or dies there is no blame upon the woman and her former husband for returning to each other if they think that they can keep the limits of Allah these are the limits of Allah which he makes clear to the people who know surah 2 verse 230 this in a nutshell it means um, if a Muslim woman and husband get a divorce and want to remarry, the ex-wife has to marry a third party, a man, have sex, and then he has to divorce her, and only then she can marry the first husband again. Let me be clear to you, my inter in interpretation of this law is called, it's being sick, whatever the evil. The context of this verse is such that Allah never likes a husband and a wife to get divorced. So he has created a system so unique that he, that you will think twice before taking that step uh, of getting divorced and letting your wife go. Yes, I said unique. The source of this law comes from Judeo-Christian theology like everything else. Judaism, the in, in the theology of, of God and Moses stipulates that God was not very appreciative of the husband having free a free hand in getting rid of his wife at his whims and fancies. So the rabbis invented a very complex system of administrative measures for Jewish divorce, making it very difficult for a man to divorce his wife. Christianity, the religion is the same. While it's possible to get a divorce from one's wife under certain strict conditions, the church has made it very difficult to prove those the same. That means there are reasons where you can divorce your wife in the church, but they've done everything to make sure you cannot prove it. Um, while institutionalizing laws that made it near impossible for me, for one, to get that divorce. Hence, many Christians even today do not even waste their time asking for the divorce they just tell the church to go to hell and islam however decided to take the cake and eat it too the outcome once your weak woman any any weak woman who wants to get back to their husbands have to sign an islamic marriage contract with mullahs middle agents who marry them off to marry or marry get married to them for a price the woman gets married to the men who have sex with the women for a certain pre-agreed price but do not always stop there 
Sometimes these men refuse to give the women a divorce until they are satisfied with sex they receive. There are times women are used as prostitutes. When the man is set, when the woman is set free, she is traumatized, and 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 her and her old husband does not want her back. This has been going on for fourteen hundred years. Try and imagine the internalized trauma of Muslim women. We call this rape. They call it. A religion of peace. Uh, so unfortunately, it is what it is. Um, it's a sad case. We never knew that this was going on, but apparently, it's very big. And if you think it happens only in Islamic countries, you are wrong, because it happens very clearly in 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 Western countries, big Islamic populations, United Kingdom, the United States, Canada. It happens, and no one talks about it because all these governments will uh, want vote banks, so they're not going to talk about this under any circumstance whatsoever. So we, uh, I think, we have time for one more small concept. And we'll talk about it briefly um, and go from finish this podcast today. We heard there what apostasy, ex-Muslim apostasy, apostasy all the time. Uh, and people who commit apostasy are killed in Islam. That's what everyone says, although it's not written in the Quran. But we'll show you something. We, we'll just talk about the foundation, the historical aspect of this. So... Apostasy, apostasy is an English word, it comes from Middle English apostasy, from Late Latin uh, apostasia, and from Greek apostasis. Literally a revolt or deflection from aphistasi, to revolt. So I'm sorry I, I massacred that word completely. It's a Greek word. Uh, it starts with apo and hishtashtai. To stand, that means um, to stand against, to revolt, to deflect. All three Abrahamic feudal religions have apostasy as part of this theology. Uh, it's an act of leaving one's religion or fold. In Judaism, one finds apostasy mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 6 to 11. In Christianity, chapter 2, verses uh, 20 to 22. That will be the new, the the, sec, the old, the New Testament. Sorry. Islam is as usual contradictory. In the Quran, we get there is no compulsion religion. That's only when Muslims are minority in Medina. Once they became majority, they abrogated the worst. The punishment for apostasy in Islam is death, as in Hadith, as in the Hadith al-Bukhari, um, Diyat, where Muhammad said, whoever changed his Islamic religion, kill him. And that's Sahih Bukhari uh, 9... Verses 83, uh, sorry, 9.83.17. Um, it's also in 9.84.57. Um, both of these state that the apostates must be murdered. The Quran, Surah chapter 3, verses 72, and chapter 4, verses 137, says that for all those who reject faith after accepting their repentance will never be accepted in other words apostates and heretics can never be saved so that is said in quran chapter 4 verses 89 chapter 9 verses 11 to 12 chapter 88 uh, verses 21 chapter 5 verse 54 and chapter 2 uh, verses 21 it all also talks about apostasy and punishment 
Here is the context. All religions are colonial empires, very much like the armed forces of today. A deserter will be punished and court-martialed. Back then, the court-martial was called apostasy. Since the state camouflaged a political agenda with divine intervention, through their theologians, this rhetoric was never questioned but accepted as a request from God. At the same time, they denied the right to question the, this rhetoric. If God really existed, the empires would never have collapsed. But they did. Their God remained behind, as one cannot see God in blind faith. Thus, th then the theologians sold their rhetoric to narrative to whichever the next empire passed by, and the rhetoric continues till today. As I like to say, the empires are dead, but their divine departments are open for business, and they need our human capital to resurrect their colonial empires and suit their vested interests. Behind every religion, there's a business empire. Thus, the rhetoric is not only enforced depending on the country and the local region, the community and family you belong to, but it's carried on with honor to justify any type of grip on society and micromanage its economics, micro and macro. The mentality is maintained just like you keep tabs on the monetary capital. Do you let your dollars fly away or something? someone else take it to your detriment? Well, to those theocratic establishments, we human beings are capital, human capital. Capital which is used to gain interest while maintaining and using their power-centric Western agenda. The more human capital they have, the more money they have, and the more mo money they have, the more power to maintain it. Why would they let us go? Hence the violence to do anything to make sure that we are subjugated as slaves. So there you have it, uh, my friends. Today, four topics, four uh, issues that I've talked about. It gives you the foundation of, of, of what the background of these talks are about. And I hope you um, take notes. You can go back on the podcast. You can also have the, that, that talk, that discussion. Research it. Do your research yourself. Write it down. It's important that you write it down and speak to your friends, your family on platforms. Um, um, discuss it. Uh, ask your friends to discuss it with their friends and talk to your elected representatives. Send them emails. Uh, talk to send send the messages to platforms that say you want this discussed you want it gone deep into and so you can bring this out in public and, and issues like this so that you can discuss it and 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 make a change in society once and for all so in the meanwhile i like to say thank you very much i hope you have a great day and a great weekend ahead cheers <laughs>